Father, we come to you with all of our hope and our confidence placed in you. God, you bid us to come boldly before your throne of grace, but often we don't feel bold. We're aware of weakness and adequacy. We're an error, er, and, and aware of failings. We're aware of so many things and troubles in this life. But God, thank you that our hope doesn't rest on any of those things. Our hope rests on the fact that, that Jesus, you came, you lived, you died, you were resurrected for us. And now we come boldly before the throne of grace because you welcome us into your throne room to, refine, to find mercy and help in our time of need. So God, we come boldly before your throne of grace. We ask you for your help this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It is a joy to be together with you. I've gotten to know Taylor and Emily over the last year, and I love hearing Taylor's passion for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but also his love, his affection for you as a church, his excitement to see you be ambassadors for Jesus in your local community all around you. And I love being a part of Acts 29, because if you look in the New Testament, churches work together. Churches lock arms together on mission because we're better together than we are alone and we can get much more accomplished for God's glory and for his kingdom as we work together. And so I love doing that. And I also love the personal partnership and relationship that we get to have and, and we get to care for each other. And that's important, by the way. If, if, if you know um, anything about Taylor, you know he is a very strong, capable person. But you know what? Um, all of us need things at times. We need help. We need care. We need to have prayer. And so we gather together and we have about nine churches in South Carolina. We gather together and we pray a couple times a year. We encourage each other and it's been so good to have that kind of fellowship. And so thank you for enabling that to take place. Thank you for enabling your church, your pastors, your staff to go to the Acts 29 retreat last week. Thank you for being a church. I know that you guys are, are, are looking forward to building a building, but you're the church. The building is not the church. Amen. You are the church, and thank you for being the church, followers of Jesus Christ who are demonstrating him in the community around you. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter 1. We're going to be reading verses 13 through 21. This is God's holy inspired word that he intends for us to hear from him today. Let's listen that way. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but made manifest in the last times for your sake who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's ask God to bless us once again. 
Father, thank you that your word is living, it's active, it pierces, it's, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, Lord. It penetrates in our hearts and minds. And Lord, I pray that you would do that with your word today, that you would, you would bring the gift of, of conviction, that you would bring the gift of encouragement through your word, that Holy Spirit, you would enable us to hear from you and enable me to preach. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, back in the 1950s, Kirk Richter, he was the professor of the psychobiology lab at Johns Hopkins, and he decided to conduct an experiment on wild and then domesticated rats. And he, he first took a dozen domesticated rats. These were previously pets. They were pampered. They lived an easy lifestyle. And he put them in this jar half filled with water, and the first rat swam around for a couple minutes, went down to the bottom, came back up again, and then eventually died. The next two rats did a similar kind of thing, and they died within a minute or two. But then the other nine rats, they all lived for days. They kept swimming. And he was shocked because these domesticated rats had never been in the water before. They didn't know what to expect, and so they just kept swimming until they couldn't anymore. Then he took 34 wild rats that had actually, um, they were fierce, they aggressive, and they actually were good at swimming. These were rats that were accustomed to swimming. They were fierce. They were strong. And then he puts them in these jars of water and then all of them, one by one, immediately die within moments of going in this jar of water. One by one, they surprised him. And so he, he wondered, what kills these rats? What makes a difference? Why do these fierce, aggressive, wild rats who are good at swimming otherwise, why do they die promptly after they've been put in the water? And, and conversely, only a small number of these Domesticated rats died. That doesn't make sense. And then he discovered, he says, the answer in one word is hope. He wrote, the situation of these rats is scarcely seems one demanding fight or flight. It's rather one of hopelessness. The rats are in a situation against which they have no defense. They literally seem to give up. And then he tweaks the experiments and he took other similar rats and he put them in a jar and then after a few moments, right before they're going to drown, he pulls them out of the jar, he comforted them, he fed them, he, he got them warm and then he put them back in the jar. And then they, they realized that they didn't drown right away because they thought hope was coming. There was a hand at the ready to give them assistance. When they had a reason to keep swimming, when they thought there was hope, they didn't give up. They didn't go under. He wrote, after elimination of hopelessness, the rats do not die. There's a lot of difference between us and rats. Only we are made in God's image. But when we become hopeless, we're tempted to give up. Here's the good news. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, hopelessness has been eliminated. We have a great and lasting hope. After elimination of hopelessness, there's a reason to keep swimming. Jesus gives us a reason to keep swimming, and that's what the apostle Peter is writing to us about here. But the question for all of us and want us to consider is, what are you hoping in? Who are you hoping in? Now, that can be revealed by what you get upset about, what you get anxious about. That can reveal where your hope really is. See, the Apostle Peter, he's writing to people who were living in exiles. They had once, they'd been born again. They'd received the good news of the gospel. They responded to the gospel. They'd been made alive. They received the grace of God. They, they were excited. They were joyful. And they were looking forward to his return imminently. But then the years dragged on, 20, 30 years. And they encountered hardship. 
they actually were forced to leave their homes, leave their jobs, leave their livelihoods, their economy around them. It forced them out and they were on the run. They were living as exiles. They were tempted to be confused. They were tempted to give up hope. Where is God? Where is Christ? Where is his return? If God is good, if he loves me, if there's hope in him, then why do bad things happen all around me? Why am I not um, financially free? I imagine they were tempted to become confused and hopeless. You ever, you ever tempted that way? Anybody here ever tempted to lose hope, to think, God, where are you? Lord, if you're good then, and if you love me, if there's hope, then why, all these things, why do these things happen to me? You know, I imagine some of you are experiencing pain. You're experiencing hardship or difficulty. Some of you might be experiencing financial challenges, maybe loss of security or stability, difficulties at work or at home. Maybe things didn't turn out the way that you thought that they would. Maybe your spouse or your kids or your family or your friends or your work or whatever, your school, it didn't turn out the way that you thought it would. Because the truth is, things rarely do, right? That is what the people that Peter was writing to were facing. They needed encouragement. They needed to know what their true hope was. And you know what? That's what we need too. God's word is timeless. And so we need that same encouragement to, to find where our true hope is. And so Peter writes them in the beginning. He says, you are being guarded by God's power through faith. Right before these verses, this is what this therefore points back to. You're being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that's ready to be revealed. This is not a salvation that's in doubt. This is a salvation that's ready to be revealed. It stands waiting. Your ultimate salvation, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you put your faith in him, your salvation is ready to be revealed. It's, it's in the waiting for you. You've already been saved and yet, oh, we'll be fully delivered. It'll be fully revealed. And so that's hope that we have. It's meant to inform us. It's meant to strengthen us. It's meant to sustain us to live our lives each and every day. If you've been a Christian for long enough, you read your Bible and you realize that, you know, I'm supposed to obey God. But it gets hard. It gets difficult, especially when you lack faith, when you don't see hope. And yet Peter here gives us a reason to keep going, to keep swimming. He gives us a reason for our hope and so we see that, that really the main idea of this passage is that hope enables us to live obedient lives to God. Hope enables us to live obedient lives to God. You, you know, it's not sheer effort. It's not determination. It's hope. Now, it's not even hope in ourselves. But hope in Christ enables us to live obedient lives to God. I love where our passage falls. You see, it falls right after verse 3. If you look down your Bibles with me. Chapter 1, verse 3, he wrote, You've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Your hope is not dead. Your hope is alive because your hope is Christ and he lives forever. That's where it begins. We've been born again to living hope. If you're a Christian, that's what's happened. You've been made new. You've been born again to living hope. And then in verse 21, it says that through Jesus were believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. So what? So that your faith and your hope are, are on yourself? No. So your faith and your hope are in God. But how are you living? How do we live? How, where's your hope? In between these two moments, we find where our hope really is. And, and, and he informs us in, in verse 13 that we're to hope fully in grace. Hope fully in grace. Not partially, not just a little bit, but hope fully in grace. Because, you know, what, is it, what does it mean to hope on something? You know, you might hope that a local high school team might win, right? You might, you might hope for the Eagles to win. Or the Dolphins, or I think the Mighty Lions, the Trinity Mighty Lions, or something like that. 
I was trying to look up the sports teams locally. You don't have a lot. Um, there, there was, uh, or maybe the, maybe the USC beats Sand Sharks. Maybe you're hoping in them to win. That's definitely not a certain hope. That's not the kind of hope that we're to have in the Bible. The kind of hope it talks about is a hope that's sure. The kind of hope that Peter's writing about is a hope that's already been secured that's already kept securely in heaven. It's, it's in the vault of heaven, guarded by God. That's the living hope. That's the inheritance that we have. And Jesus, he is alive forevermore. It's not a hope that we wonder if it will be true. This is a hope that already is true, but that we fail to believe is true at times. The hope we have in Christ is certain. It's going to be poured out. It says, ready to be revealed at the appearance of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And for all those, here, here's the good news. We, we receive the grace of God because we deserve the justifiable wrath of God for all of our sins against him, all of our failings, all of our weaknesses, all of our inadequacies actually deserve the punishment of God. And so often we're aware of that. Wake up in the morning, you're aware of your feelings, you're aware of the problems, you're aware of the insufficiencies, the difficulties in your life. You're aware of how you don't measure up. Here is what we hope in. We don't hope in that. We hope fully on the grace of God. It's his grace, his undeserved, unmerited favor has been poured out on us through Jesus Christ so that now, instead of wrath, we receive welcome. Instead of God shunning us, he brings us in. That is what we hope in. We hope fully in the grace of God. We can hope in all kinds of things though, right? We can be tempted to. Peter tells them to hope fully in the grace of God because you know why? They were tempted to hope in all kinds of other things. Maybe you find yourself there as well. Maybe you're hoping in your situation to change, in your circumstance to change. Maybe you're hoping in, a, in your new church building, boy, it's gonna enable you to be better disciples of Jesus Christ. But no, let me give you a hint. You are already disciples of Jesus Christ. You're already a church a building just frees you up so that all the time you spend serving, you know, setting up, taking down, you can use it now and going out of the neighborhoods, right? But what a joy that we don't have to hope in other things to satisfy us. Stability or comfort, security, financial freedom. We don't hope in politics, right? I mean, come on, that's, that's not a place we hope. We don't hope in those things. No situation, no outcome here on earth is a source of hope for us. Now, now, often it can be revealed what we're hoping and can be revealed by what do you get anxious about? What do you get angry about? What do I, what do I get upset or angry about? What do, I, what, do I, what do I get mad about when I don't get it? You know, James 4 tells us, why are the quarrels and fights among you? Isn't it this, that you, you don't get what you want and so you get angry? Oh, you're hoping in something other than Christ or someone other than Christ. Maybe you're hoping in control or stability or security or maybe you get anxious, you're fearful. That reveals where our hope is. But Peter says, no, set your hope fully on the grace of God that will be revealed to you. And he gives us really two means for, for doing that, two, two, methodology, two methodologies for, for putting our hope, setting our hope fully. Because sometimes I'm like, well, I'm supposed to set my hope fully on something? Well, I'm hoping in Jesus. Well, he gives us some practical means. He says, preparing your minds for action is what the ESV says. The, the, the literal rendering of those words is, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, I had, I had to look up what a loin of your mind is, right? I mean, because it's, it's not a phrase we use a lot. 
And so we have a picture for you of what, is it, what does it look like to gird up the loins? You see, when, when people would go into battle in ancient days in that time, they would wear robes. And you can't fight really well. You can't run very well in a robe. And have you ever tried that or not? Try running in a robe. I mean, it gets a little awkward. So they would pull up the robes and they would pull the belt around them. And so then they would be ready. They would pull up all this excess and they wrap it around them so they could be ready to go into battle, ready for action, ready for work. Whatever they were called to do, they would gird up those, their loins. They would bring these robes up. And so Peter's using very graphic words here. He says, do that with your mind. Gird up, get ready for action. Don't be passive in putting your hope in Jesus. Don't be passive, but, but gird up the loins of your mind. Get ready for action because, by the way, you're going to face action. You need to work. You're going to face battles. So gird up the loins of your mind. Get ready for action. Prepare your minds. Take time each and every day to apply the hope that you have to your minds and, and think about what's coming next. You know, one of the practices that I was, I was taught very early on by a guy named Jerry Bridges was, was to preach the gospel to yourself each and every day. And, and I used to think that was silly until I realized how much I needed it. I needed to repeat the good news of Jesus Christ, who I am in Jesus Christ, who he has made me to be, the fact that all my sins have been wiped away, that, that I stand before him completely acceptable. And then I, I needed to preach the fact that I've been justified, that completely God's wrath has been satisfied and now I stand holy before him, not because of me, but because of him. And we need to think that way each and every day, setting our minds fully on the grace of God. And then he tells us another way, he says, be sober-minded. Don't, don't be thoughtless in the way you walk into the things of the world. Don't be drunk on the things of the world. Don't get carried away. Think with a clear mind. Don't be intoxicated with the things of the world. And let me encourage you, if you're, if you're tempted to be intoxicated with the things of the world, those are the things that were of your former ignorance, Peter writes. Don't be intoxicated by the things that have to do with your former ignorance. Because all of us at one time were ignorant, right? All of us were intoxicated by the things of the world, thinking the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, those are things intoxicating. He says, no, be sober-minded. Don't think that way. Those things won't fulfill you. Those, that's not where your hope is. Be sober-minded. Set your minds. Meditate on. Remember the truth. You know, when, when my hope is set on other things, it's, it's pretty easily revealed. You know, I, I like to be in control. I like to be in charge of things. I like things to go my way. When things don't go my way, I can get upset. I can get angry. Anybody here ever have that issue? It's, just, it's really only me, I bet, right? And what that reveals is that my hope is on a certain outcome. My hope is for things to be as I expect them to be. And that reveals something that, that, that the scripture would just call an idol. I'm making that thing or that person or that outcome a false God. I'm making that my God functionally. And so Peter says, don't live like that. Be sober-minded, set your minds, be, be ready for action. Hope fully on grace, not on other things. Hope fully on grace, and that enables us to live obedient lives to God. That's our motivation that we receive God's grace. And the second thing that he tells us is, is to hope in our identity. That's what we see in the following verses, in verses 14 to 17. Hope fully on grace, hope fully in your identity. Look at verse 14, he says, as obedient children. Do you think of yourself as a child of God? Because, because here's what he says in verse 17. And if you call on him as father, don't take that word for granted. 
you might have had a bad childhood. You might have had a bad father. You might not have had a father. If you're a Christian now, you have a loving, perfect father. And his acceptance of you has nothing to do with you. And that's wonderful news. And the father adopts us and makes us a part of his family. And, and, and that adoption can never be undone. I've got six kids. Um, like Taylor mentioned, five of them are here. And I have a picture for you of my kids. Um, they don't like it when I do this, but I'm going to do this anyway. So my kids, they all look a little like me. It's pretty obvious. You know, people say, Matt, Matt you only make one kind of kid. They just look like, you know, they all look like you. And, and I'm sure the girls really appreciate that. But they're the pretty version, so that's good. Um, when I moved my uh, daughter, Abby, when I moved her out of her dorms at the end of last year and um, she came home, I, I saw a couple of her friends talking and I realized they were, they were mentioning that, man, Abby looks a lot like her dad. And, and I'm sure that was just great to hear, you know. But, but being a part of my family, it means you're going to look a certain way. And also there becomes some expectations as well for, for them and their behavior and what they're going to act like. And so they have some of my characteristics. I'm sorry. They have some of my personality traits. I'm sorry. Um, hopefully some of the good ones they'll keep, then the bad ones they'll, they'll let go. But families look alike. You've ever, you ever met weird kids and then you meet their parents and you're like, oh, okay. I, I get it. I get, I get that. I see where those kids got it. Like, how are those kids so, oh, all right. Or maybe you're the weird ones, right? Um, and if you think of somebody else, you actually might be the weird one in the room. Because we, we all look like our, our families to some degree, for good or bad. But Peter wants us to think about who our real father is, who our true family is, our spiritual family. We are children of God. We call on him as father. And so he wants us to have our identity as children of God. He wants us to have our identity as obedient children. And your identity is, is as those who call on God as father. Theologian J.I. Packer, he wrote, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he or she does not understand Christianity very well at all. D did you hear that? If this is not the thought of God as Father that prompts and controls worship and prayers and our whole outlook on life. It means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that is distinctively Christian, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Do you think of God as your loving Father? Are you aware that that is your identity? And if so, he says, you so it's written that you, you shall be holy as I am holy. You shall be holy for I am holy. This is, this is not just our, what we're supposed to be, but he says, you actually shall be holy. This is what God has declared. You're gonna be holy. You are holy. You've already been declared holy and because God is holy. And so our Life, the way that we live, it reflects. Just like with my children and, and pastor's kids, they sometimes are looked at and expected to behave in a certain way. And by the way, don't do that with your pastor's children. Don't have expectations for them to, to be a certain way because they're like all of us, they're flawed, right? 
and they need the grace and freedom to live lives before God without extra scrutiny. But, but here's the thing. As children of God, that's, that really is our identity. My, like my kids are aware when they're at church, they're aware their behavior reflects on me in some way, for good or bad. Your behavior, how you live as obedient children, it reflects on where your hope is. It reveals where your hope is. And yet also that should motivate us. He says, live with fear. Not like I'm afraid of God, but I have a holy reverence for God. I'm going to live with this mindset that knowing that how I live, it reflects on the Savior that I call on. And so I need to live that way with that identity. But here's the other part of our identity. Um, he says that, that we're living as exiles. Look in verse 17. He says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially. By the way, God is an impartial judge, but he welcomes you from the courtroom into the family room. He says, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. And there should be a measure of fear and trepidation when we read that. He says, conduct yourselves with fear. And then he says something else important about your identity. He says, throughout this time uh, as exiles. Your identity is as exiles. As exiles. Do you think of yourself that way? That this world is not really your home. This kingdom is not really your kingdom, that you have another kingdom that you've been brought into and that you're guaranteed to go back to. And so right now, you're not living for this kingdom. You're not living in this world, this nation, as if this is our ultimate hope. You're living as exiles. Now, recently, um, I guess it was about, well, in February, Russia, as we know, invaded Ukraine. And since then, there have been 12 million people. And we have a picture of the exiles for you. What, what it looks like to live as exiles. You see, they're, they're not living in a home here. They're in a gymnasium. There's, there's been over 12 million Ukrainians that are gone to live as exiles. Now, they're aware of the fact that they're still Ukrainian, even though they're living in Poland or wherever else they might be. They are aware of their identity and they want to go back home. They do. But the enemy has not been vanquished there. Now here's, here's the thing as Christians, we are to live as exiles aware that this isn't really our true home. We don't live with this place as a sense of permanence as we're trying to create a utopia here. Well, we live knowing, here's the good news, Jesus has already vanquished the enemy, but every evil power is going to be completely done away with before we go home. But we live as exiles. We live with that as our identity. As our, our identity is as children who are in exile. And that identity, it shapes everything about us. We're, we're meant to live each and every day hoping fully on grace, hoping in our identity as, as God's children who are, who are living in exiles. And, and then we're meant to think that way. We're meant to think like exiles. Think, this isn't my home. This isn't how I'm meant to, to behave. This isn't how I'm meant to live. We're not to, meant to have our, our thinking patterned after the th ways of the world, the things of the world. Christian, let me ask you, are there, are there any passions that you are allowing yourself to be conformed to that have to do with your former ignorance? Because Peter says, don't do that. Don't, don't be conformed to your former ignorance. What passions draw you? What are you living for? What are you hoping in? What identity are you hoping in this morning? We've seen already that that we hope fully on the grace that, that, lives us, that enables us to live obedient lives. We're to hope fully on our identity as children and as exiles. And then the third thing is that hoping in our ransom is going to enable us to live obedient lives. Hope in your ransom. Back in 1996, we have a picture of this for you as well. There was a movie, it was called Ransom, a, a guy named Mel Gibson, who's kind of not very popular right now. 
But at the bottom of that, it's the tagline. It says, someone has to pay. That was the tagline of the whole movie. Someone has to pay. Someone's got to pay a ransom because his 12-year-old son had been abducted by kidnappers and they were demanding $30 million or however much it was uh, for him to give that. And he realized that, wait a minute, these guys are not good people. Um, I'm not going to get my son back. Even if I pay them, I'm not guaranteed to get my son back. And so he flips the script. He turns things around on them and he says, no, I'm not giving you $30 million. In fact, I'm actually going to give anybody out there $30 million if they bring me your dead bodies and release my son. Because someone had to pay. The father had been offended. The son had been offended. Someone had to pay. For each and every one of us, that's how we were born. We were born into sin. We were born as enemies of God. And then we added to that by rebelling actively against God in thought and word and deed and in desires. And we were against God. We became God's enemies. We were hating his son. We were hating and being hated. And all of us deserve wrath and punishment. Um, Someone has to pay. But here's the really good news. God planned since before the foundation of the world to send his son, Jesus, because he loves you. He decided to come and humble himself. And so someone has to pay, but that someone is Jesus. And so now we hope in our ransom. We've been bought. We've been paid for. And I I love that we sang the song at the beginning of the service, Jesus paid it all. Do Do you believe that? Or do you wake up thinking, God doesn't really like me. God's not really pleased with me because I screwed up again. God doesn't really like me because I'm just, I'm so weak. I'm so insufficient. I'm I'm such a mess. I got angry the other day. I got fearful, whatever it is. I I said something I shouldn't have said. I did something I shouldn't have done. Are Are you more aware of that than you are of the fact that, no, Jesus has paid it all? Oh, if you are aware of the fact that Jesus has paid it all, that transforms how you live and what you live for. It transforms you so that you can live out of gratitude, wanting to obey him because he's paid everything for you. We've all sinned against a holy God. We were all his enemies, and yet he's paid a ransom. He's flipped the script. Instead of making us pay, he's made Jesus pay. And Peter, he wants us to have confidence in God and his grace for us. And look at verse 18. It says, knowing you were ransomed, not with something that doesn't last like silver and gold. And maybe right now you've taken all your money out of the stock market and you're putting it into gold thinking that is lasting. Peter says, no, that's not lasting. That's perishable. See, all the things in this world, they're going to perish. If you read Revelation, you know the end of the story. Gold, silver, those things are perishable. He says, you haven't been ransomed with something perishable like that that will that will go away when the end of the ages goes away. You're, you've been ransomed with something that will never go away when the end of the ages has come. One person is standing above all, over all, and that is Jesus, and his blood has ransomed us. Now he lives, he's been resurrected, and, and his resurrection is proof, is proof that his sacrifice was completely acceptable to God for us. You see, if Jesus, if if more punishment for sin needed to be made, Jesus would still be dead, but he's not. And so we we have a hope that's a resurrection hope, a living hope, a hope that's alive forevermore. It will never perish. And he says, know that. Do you know that? Do you know you've been ransomed with this, this, this imperishable hope? It's, it's the precious blood of Christ that 
without, blot, without spot or blemish. And, and in the Old Testament, they would bring these lambs and they would have to find a lamb without spot or blemish. And, and yet every year after year, they would have to bring these lambs because the sacrifice was never ending because um, physical lambs could never cover over for our sins. He says, you haven't been ransomed like that. You've been ransomed with the spotless blood of Jesus Christ. And I love that you guys take communion every day, every week, because we get to celebrate that. And then hoping in our ransom, it's, it's meant to empower us to live a life that's, that's obedient to God. Where we seek to give God the glory. Where we seek to let our lives be a living sacrifice to him. And look at verse 21, it says, who through him. Here's our hope. Through him, we are believers. Not through ourselves even. You know, you know what that means? You didn't even create the faith that you have in God. And that's really good news. You know why? Because sometimes I lack faith. You ever lack faith? Anybody here ever lack faith? Our faith is not in our faith. It says, through him, you're believers. Whoa. God made you alive. He enabled you to believe so that even the faith that you have to believe is not your own. It's a gift from God. So if you believe in him, no matter how feebly you're trying to believe in him, but you can be feeble at times. It says, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead so that your faith and your hope are not in yourselves. No, what does it say in verse 21? Look down your Bible so that your faith and your hope are, say those last two words with me, in God. Come on, let's try it again. So your faith and your hope are in God. That's where our faith and our hope is, in God. All of our lives now are meant to be lived as a response to who we are in Christ Jesus. In response to this great salvation, we, we can live lives hoping fully on grace, hoping in our identity, hoping in our ransom, and that hope is no matter what comes in this life, no matter what difficulties or hardship, no matter whether or not we die now, we die later. All of us are going to pass through these dark waters of death, and yet we can have a hope that will sustain us through that. I love John Bunyan's book, The Pilgrim's Progress. And, and in The Pilgrim's Progress, he writes about this celestial city. And that's a picture of heaven and how we have to pass across this dark river. It stands between him and the celestial city, this, this main character, Christian, and his friend, Hopeful. And they're accompanied by a couple angels. But Dark River is tumultuous. It's, it's intimidating. It's too broad to swim. Its current is too fast. It will take them downstream. There's no way they can get across on their own. There's no boat. There's no bridge. And they are standing at the banks of this dark river, and it says they're very much astounded. And maybe that's you. But the angel tells Christian, you must go through or you cannot come to the place. You cannot come to the gate. And they ask, is the water all deep? No, they're told, he says, he shall find it deeper or shallower as you believe in the king of the place. Crossing the river of death is a test of faith. Apprehensively, it says that pilgrims, he, the pilgrim wades in and Christian cries out, I sink in deep waters. The billows go over my head. All his waves go over me. I shall not see the land that flows with milk and honey. And you might be feeling that way. His companion, Hopeful, says, be of good cheer. I found good footing and, and, and I'll help you. But Christian, he goes down, it says, in a great darkness and horror as he recalls all of his sins, both since and before he began to be a pilgrim. And by the way, that's how the devil tempts us as well. To recall all of our sins since before and after. Here's the amazing thing. The blood of Christ covers all of our sins, past, present, and future. And yet Christian's recalling these things. Losing his senses, he writes, he begins to see hobgoblins and evil spirits. 
Hopeful does everything to keep his brother's head above water. Sometimes he'd be quite gone down. Then after a while, he'd rise up again half dead. Eventually, hopeful persuades Christian that he is not lost. If he sets his hope on Christ, he'll be saved. And in the end, he is, and he comes to the celestial city. And when he goes into the city through the gates, he looks back on the gates and written in letters of gold are blessed are those that do his commandments that they may have the right, the right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gate into the city. But you see, our hope is that all of his works have been given to us. That's our hope. But if, if you lose that hope while you're swimming, you can be tempted to give up. You can be tempted to go under, to succumb to the waves, to the water. Remember at the beginning, I told you about those rats that, that they would be pulled out of the water by that helping hand. If they, if they thought that a helping hand was at the ready, that they would, they would then have hope. But here's the thing that is not true of the rats, but it's true of us. That God holds us in his hands. And the Apostle John tells us that God himself holds us in his hands and no one can pull us from his hands. And Jesus and the Father are one. He holds you in his hands securely. You have a lasting hope. You have a secure hope. A hope that's guarded. You can hope in the grace that you've received. Hope in your identity. Hope in your ransom. Hope is what will enable us to live obedient lives to God. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you've paid it all. All to you we owe. But Lord, thank you that we don't repay you. We live lives of gratitude to you. God, help us to. Lord, where people today might be doubting, they might be lacking hope, they might be aware of weakness or inadequacy, Lord, we pray that they would hope in you, that, Lord, they would find fresh hope in their identity, fresh hope in ransom, fresh hope in the grace of God that you've given to us. Father, I pray for both the gift of conviction and Lord, the gift of encouragement. Lord, we, we pray against condemnation. Because Lord, we know that's not from you, but Lord, we pray for conviction, turning, and repentance and faith in you. And God, I pray that you would stir our hearts and minds up to hope in you. In Jesus' name, amen.